1: If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices.
2: Today's cool fact of the day is that nerve impulses to and from the brain travel as fast as 170 miles an hour. We're not quite sure how this might change with more training like, say, EEG neurofeedback or bulletproof mind wear. We can be pretty sure, though, that they aren't going to lower it. We do know that the type of electrical STEM training that we're using for the biohacking conference in September does increase the size of your myelin sheath which is what insulates your nerves electrically. If you increase the size of your insulation, it reduces the resistance in your nerves, which in essence means your nerves get faster. So do you, and so does your brain.
1: What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use.
2: You're listening to episode 31 of Upgraded Self Radio with Dave Asprey from the Bulletproof Executive blog, along with Alexis Bright on Q&A and Army Leg for the Biohacker Report. Today's interview is with John Weiser, a sleep expert and researcher who knows a lot more about what you do at night than you do. We talk about some of the latest research on sleep improvement, including the role of inflammation and the use of smart drugs. We close with our biohacker report, where you'll hear a brief summary of a new study that will help you get the same results from a workout program that takes 74% less time. We have a couple announcements today, too. It's my pleasure to announce that the new Bulletproof Cookbook is almost ready. This is something we've been working on for months. It's full of 100% Bulletproof recipes, and it includes pictures, resources, and everything else you need to eat on the green side of the Bulletproof diet all the time. It's called Upgraded Chef. Secondly, Upgraded Aging is now available on UpgradedSelf.com. This is a supplement that's based on a proprietary formula that was just released. It targets three different pathways that increase mitochondrial performance, reduce the effects of aging, and even mimic caloric restriction. It's also very neuroprotective, especially for things like glutamate toxicity, which is a major problem if you eat restaurant foods. This is one of the only versions of the supplement you can get on the market today. The chemical itself is called thermally stabilized oxaloacetic acid, and I've worked really hard to ensure that this is the real deal. You can check out the show notes on bulletproofexec.com to learn more, but this is a supplement that I take daily, and it's had a noticeable impact on the way I feel.
3: Now it's time for Upgrade of the Week. Dave, what have you been working on?
2: Well, I recently gave a talk about how to use oxygen to improve my mental performance on airplanes. I'm doing something that's pretty similar to that. By the way, that talk is available on the blog. I'm megadosing on San Pellegrino water. And that may sound a little weird. Why are you drinking sparkling water? One, I've noticed that there's an impact by having more CO2. I seem to have different mental levels of awareness. But that's a pretty transient effect. What I'm looking for is to get the approximate half a gram of sulfur that's available in Pellegrino. This is one of the only bottled waters that has that much sulfate. There is a theory out there that I'm sort of testing out for myself that says that one of the immunomodulating and very important signaling pathways in the body, perhaps even as important as the nitric oxide pathways, may be the sulfate pathway. We know, for instance, that if you get actual sunshine, not just taking vitamin D capsules, but actually being in the sun, you get vitamin D sulfate, not just vitamin D. And we know cholesterol sulfate is the only form of cholesterol that can cross the placental barrier to allow a baby to get the cholesterol it so desperately needs to grow. So it may turn out that all those rumors about San Pellegrino being the source of healing waters may be true. So for a couple of months here, I'm drinking a couple liters a day, and I'm just going to monitor and see what it does. I'm quite intrigued. Alexis, what have you been doing?
3: I've been experimenting with protein fasting, actually, and I know that you have a blog series coming out about this. So I'm going to ask you to say a little bit more about it. But I've been protein fasting about once a week. I start out with my regular Bulletproof coffee in the morning. For lunch, I do vegetables and usually an avocado. If I'm feeling a little peckish later in the day, I'll drink some coconut milk and, again, a low-protein dinner, um, usually veggies and an avocado. And actually, I, I sometimes bump up my carbohydrates a little bit more at night. But I want to be careful that what I am eating keeps my total protein intake to below 15 grams of protein a day. And do you want to talk more of the theory about why this is good for us?
2: This is something I've been doing for a while too. What you do is one day a week, you just don't eat protein. And not eating protein means really not eating it. There's lots of kind of hidden sources of a few grams of protein here, a few grams of protein there. The idea. Keep your protein below 15 grams a day. It was uh, Josh Whitten, a friend of mine, who actually pointed out to me that on some of my protein fasting days, I probably wasn't succeeding because I wasn't being too militant about understanding how much protein was in some of the things that I was eating. So I don't do this every week, but I do it often enough to have an effect. This kicks off a process called autophagy which is something you get from bulletproof intermittent fasting. It's just when you do a protein fast for a whole day, you get a big slug of it all at once. Autophagy is when your cells clean out their uh, own sort of, clean out the inside of your cells. It's a repair process that most of us don't really get to experience on a regular basis. You notice a difference right away, like the next day when you do protein fasting.
3: Yeah, I definitely notice a difference. I actually noticed that I feel pretty good the entire day. I mean, I feel good generally. I was worried that I would feel bad not having protein, but I felt fine as long as I don't do it more than once a week. Because I did try doing it twice in one week and I skipped the week after that because I, I could just tell my body didn't want to do it again. So
2: It's a tough thing because if, you know, if you're trying to put on a lot of muscle, which is not exactly my goal, i tend to put on a lot of muscle because I'm eating the right foods without the toxins. I want to look healthy, feel healthy, and be strong in the minimum amount of time required. But some people really do, either because they're training for a sport or because they're just trying to bulk up. Protein fasting may not be the right thing for those guys, but for everyone else, it's something that you might want to consider doing, even if you're 50 and you just want to feel good. One day a week, eating more fat and no protein is not a bad thing to do. Now it's time for the exclusive interview with John Weiser on how you can improve your sleep. Dr. Weiser is one of the foremost researchers on sleep and nervous system function. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Penn State University and a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. Then he served as a postdoc fellow and subsequently as a research associate at Stanford University School of Medicine. And from 2004 through 2008, he was a staff scientist at SRI International, which is a nonprofit research institute in Menlo Park, California. His lab is funded by both the DOD and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke to apply molecular, genetic, and biochemical techniques to study sleep. Dr. Weiser comes on the show today to talk about how you can use biochemistry to improve sleep and your quality of life. Dr. Weiser, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. First question, how do you define sleep deprivation? We hear all these different numbers, how much sleep people need. How do you know when someone's deprived of sleep?
4: The easiest way would be Well, well, first of all, it is not easy, but the the easiest way would be to do something called a psychomotor vigilance task. The psychomotor vigilance task is a a very boring task, which means it's very good at detecting sleep deprivation. So you have someone with with a smartphone and they'll have a a bullseye will appear on the smartphone on average about every 10 seconds. But the actual timing will vary from maybe every 2 to 15 seconds. And as soon as they see the bullseye on the screen of their smartphone, they have to tap the screen. Uh, And it turns out that when someone is sleep deprived, they lose the ability to do that very simple task because they will actually fall asleep while they're sitting there. Even over a period of, you know, five, ten seconds waiting for that bullseye to appear on their smartphone, they'll fall asleep. It won't be instantaneous. It'll be after doing the task for a few minutes If you do the task for three to five minutes and you start to fall asleep in that task, then you are sleep deprived. So, you know, what that means in practice would be it varies tremendously across individuals. Some people can get six hours of sleep a night and not be sleep deprived. Their performance on that task will not decline. Uh, Other individuals will need uh, more like eight or nine hours of sleep per night. And if they have less than eight or nine hours of sleep per night, their performance in the task will decline, and that, by our definition, means they're sleep-deprived. So there are a good deal of individual differences, but we essentially we could define being sleep-deprived as getting an insufficient amount of sleep to maintain your wakefulness during the day.
2: I think that's an probably the best definition that i've ever heard of, of sleep deprivation and i love how you quantify it with uh with that test i've done that test at various times in my life when i'm more or less sleep deprived and when you're tired it's just about impossible to stay awake it, it's it's kind of elegant in how quickly quickly you can tell whether you're really going beyond what you're capable of yes yes as long as you're tuned into it like that you know I write about sleep hacking and and teaching people how they can actually maybe get more sleep in less time, or at least more restorative sleep in less time. Have you ever seen cases where people sort of learn how to sleep better so they can score better on the test that you just mentioned?
4: It doesn't seem to be the case that you can do that, at least with with current (laughs) technologies that you could learn it per se. Now, anyone can reduce the amount of sleep that they get to a certain extent because our sleep becomes more efficient. So if you if it is your custom to sleep eight hours a night and you were to restrict yourself to, say, seven and a half hours of sleep per night or maybe even seven hours of sleep per night, um, you will go into the deeper phases of sleep more quickly you will stay in those deeper phases longer, and that does seem to help. So that's sort of a way that you can hack your sleep, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, and that's just a natural process that, that anyone can undergo. But the ability to do that, to constrict your sleep like that, is is uh, quite restricted. So you know, if you're accustomed to getting eight hours, you could push to maybe seven and a half, perhaps seven. But really, you're, beyond that nothing in our biology allows us to overcome this need to sleep so and again i need to qualify that because there are individuals who can sleep who actually can survive on six or six and a half hours of sleep per night um the trouble is that they don't identify themselves very well and so it's very common in auto accidents, people have fallen asleep behind the wheel because they're assuming they can survive on six hours of sleep. They're in fact, not one of those individuals who can. So, um, I wouldn't want anyone listening to this to get the impression that, you know, they are robust enough to survive with six hours of sleep or not. You really would have to do one of these systematic tests to know, you know, such as the psychomotor vigilance task to know that
2: well you've uh, you've given me an awesome idea. Um, I will find a way to get a psychomotor vigilance test a test up on the website, uh, perhaps so people can actually tell whether their their sleep experiments are working or not because there are definitely some people out there who are working to get you know, that more efficient sleep by frame of reference. I did two years with an average of five hours or less per night, and lowered my cortisol, got thinner, and uh, actually had really phenomenal performance during that time. Um, But I, you know, I used a lot of basically resilience-enhancing things as much as I could throughout the day. So Mm -hmm. it's certainly it's a corner case, but I'm I'm really intrigued that that you've brought up that quantification thing. So when we hit this sleep deprivation. Sort of phase that you've talked about, where we're really not getting enough. What does it do to your physical body? Like, what are the risks of not getting enough sleep?
4: There are a number of risks when you don't get enough sleep, and and these come out in scientific studies. So. One of the things, um, and, you know, it sounds like you might be a a unique individual or a relatively unique individual who who can survive on less sleep. But in fact, when you look at epidemiological studies, if you look at individuals who sleep five hours or less per night relative to people who sleep eight hours per night, there are differences in circulating hormones. And a couple of those hormones, I'm referring specifically here to one known as ghrelin and one known as leptin, the levels of these hormones differ between individuals who get five hours of sleep versus uh, individuals who get eight hours of sleep. Now, leptin is a satiety hormone. So when we've eaten a sufficient amount of food, we have a release of leptin, and that uh, is detected by receptors, which tell us that it's time to stop eating. On the other hand, ghrelin is a, um, a hunger hormone. And so if we need to, if it's time to have a meal, if our stomach is empty, we'll have a release of ghrelin. That ghrelin will tell us, OK, now it's time to eat. And so you have the balance of these two hormones, which will uh, help us regulate our appetite. It turns out that individuals who sleep five hours or less per night have more of this ghrelin hormone and less of the leptin hormone. Ghrelin is the one that tells us to eat. Leptin is the one that tells us not to eat. And so individuals who are sleeping five hours or less have sort of the chronic on signal for eating. And in fact, not surprisingly, when you look across the same population in epidemiological studies, people who get five or less hours of sleep per night have a, a higher body mass index, a measure of obesity than individuals who get eight hours of sleep per night. So it's not good for our diet, it's not good for our appetite, and it's not good for ultimately in terms of weight gain to have sleep insufficiency like that. Another bodily effect is uh, on the immune system. There was a study in 2009 in Annals of Internal Medicine which showed that uh, the immune response to to the common cold is compromised in individuals who have less than seven hours of sleep relative to individuals who have eight hours of sleep. So they actually took individuals in the lab. They took a sleep history from these individuals in a couple of weeks leading up to their time in the lab. And they inoculated these people through their nose with a common cold. Those who slept less than seven hours per night over the couple of weeks prior to their time in the lab were twofold more likely to develop a cold than those who slept eight hours per night. So we have that immune compromise with uh, lack of sleep. Another example I would give is that individuals who were normal, healthy individuals coming into this controlled study, they went to a laboratory at the University of Chicago where they were restricted to four hours of sleep per night for one week. And these are, again, normal, healthy individuals. By the end of that one week when they had four hours of sleep per night, they showed symptoms of type 2 diabetes, so essentially an inability to process sugar properly within one week of, of having their sleep restricted to four hours a night. And this was reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association about 10 to 12 years ago. So just sort of a broad summary of the bodily effects of sleep deprivation, which, you know, as you can see, have the potential to be quite negative.
2: That's a really good summary, and it's kind of funny in the time that I... Intentionally restricted my sleep. I ended up eating an average of between 4,000 and 4,500 calories a day in order to maintain my my mental alertness and all, which mm-hmm. you just described with the hormones. I did lose weight because of the type of calories and the lack of toxins in what I was eating. But um, again, those are kind of corner cases, and you have to you know be particularly aware of, of a lot of different variables. But the the hormone thing definitely plays out. Have you come across the The sleep study, at least the sleep data from the Cancer Prevention Study 2, uh, CPS2 from the American Cancer Society, by any chance?
4: I am not familiar with that. In fact, I'm writing it down now because this is the sort of information that uh, I like to seek, like to be familiar with. What what can you tell me about it?
2: Well, I'll send you a a link to it, and I've blogged about it because it was one of those studies that was really big. It was a million people. And the data was gathered in the 80s, but it was never crunched until someone from uh, UC San Diego went through uh, one of the researchers there and looked at the numbers. And it was very granular in terms of hours of sleep per night. And it's interesting because that study showed that the amount of sleep that produced the lowest death rate was actually seven hours per night for both men and women. But that the difference in risk between, say, five hours of sleep and eight hours of sleep, that actually people who are sleeping five hours a night were slightly uh, better off from an overall death perspective than the eight-hour people. And the researcher was claiming, and you know I, I'm not anywhere near your level of expertise in, in debunking studies like this, but he's claiming that, that no other studies that he had been able to find had enough granularity and a large enough sample size to be able to differentiate between you know six and a half and six hours of sleep but that this data set was particularly interesting
4: That is interesting now is this the deaths that you refer to is this the death uh, the death rate for cancer specifically you did mention cancer here was it that cancer or just overall mortality?
2: It was overall mortality um, from yeah. they also correlated age diet exercise existing health problems and smoking and tried to pull that data out. It's mm-hmm. a four-year study. So, I mean, it's a huge amount of data, a million people for four years. I kind of like to bring that one up because it's such an outlier and it's so counterintuitive. But my own experience in in terms of the study that I did on myself in my own little experiment, not study, but mm-hmm. it just sort of makes me scratch my head. So. I will definitely get this to you, and uh, I'd love to correspond with you offline about it. If you have thoughts, even if it's just you know two sentences, like "what a bunch of crap" or "interesting," yeah. <laughs> either yeah, one's good. Uh,
4: absolutely, I would I would definitely like to look into that. I mean, I would say in general, the epidemiological studies point seem to point the other way that is, individuals who yeah. sleep. You know, once you get below, as you said, eight, seven hours, you know, a lot of people think eight hours as sort of the magical number. If you look at the epidemiology, it's sort of seven to eight is the, is the magical zone, I guess. And as you trail off from getting less than seven hours, that's when you do start to see negative impacts in most of the studies that I'm aware of. So this, this study would be an exception as far as I know. And then, you know, getting to, to your case specifically, this is a question I think you were going to bring up later, but this seemed to bring it up. There are considerable genetic differences, and the genetic differences in, in vulnerability to, to sleep restriction are just beginning to be understood. I mean, it's been known for a long time through twin studies, for instance, that there are genetic components to the amount of sleep that we need. We're just getting to the point where we can actually identify some of the factors, some of the, the, the uh, actual genetic factors. There was a study a couple of years ago in which there was a family identified where they had two very discrete phenotypes. I don't know if that the word phenotype means anything to you or your audience, but essentially biologically encoded differences within this one family in the amount of sleep that people needed. And so there was the, the mother and the daughter in this family had a strong preference to sleep between six and six and a half hours a night. And the rest of the family slept more like seven and a half, eight hours a night. And they managed to track this down to a specific gene. There was a mutation in these two individuals. And uh, they were otherwise apparently quite healthy. And they were they were quite comfortable to be sleeping six and a half hours a night. So there, there are genuine genetic differences, you know. And again, I would caution people. I mean, maybe someday, you know, you can go to 23andMe and they'll say, oh, you've got the short sleep gene or the long sleep gene, you know. But we're not there yet. And it's very, again, unless you're actively studying yourself with this psychomotor vigilance task, you're not going to know which one you are. So if you're a person who needs eight hours of sleep and you think you only need six and a half and you can push yourself to that limit, you may find that you're out driving one night and uh, you fall asleep behind the wheel. And then you'll be one of uh, an estimated 10 to 20,000 auto accidents per year that occur because people fall asleep at the wheel. So. There are genetic differences. These differences are hard to parse out at this point, but I think you know science is getting us there, so we can look forward to that in the future as well.
2: Are there epigenetic differences? You know, is what your what your parents ate, or does your environment affect this, or do we just not know that yet?
4: Yeah, I think we we don't have a too strong of a sense of that. The one thing I would say is that is that. We can, you know, again, there is a certain amount of of flexibility within, say, an hour in the amount of sleep that we can get, because, again, our sleep becomes more efficient if we get less of it. Um, And it becomes, you know, the other side of the coin, it becomes less efficient. If you were to lay in bed for 11, 12 hours a night, you'd probably spend four or five hours awake. You know, you just wouldn't you wouldn't have that much sleep in you. But in terms of environmental factors, later on in your set of questions, you had circadian rhythms. I think I'll broach that topic now. Um, we do have a circadian rhythm, an internal biological clock, which dictates our preference for sleeping at a a certain time of day. You know, so some people, I'm very much a morning person. I'm quite happy to wake up at 5.45 a.m. I do so seven days a week. Other people would rather stay up till two or three and wake up at nine or ten. This is an endogenous preference, a genetically based preference. But at the same time, that is sensitive to light. And so if you travel to Europe, your first few days there will be rough. You won't will not have adjusted to that new uh, circadian rhythm. But after about a week, you will have adjusted to that new cycle of light and dark and your circadian rhythm will have shifted so that you're now sleeping the same time as everyone else there. And that is something that is due to our sensitivity to the light in our environment. So we do have this endogenous clock, but we can synchronize this endogenous clock with light in our environment. And it seems that individuals who go to sleep at the same time every day and wake up at the same time every day and who use the power of this circadian clock and it's the influence of light on it will have a more efficient sleep process and will be able to spend less time asleep to a small degree. I think I've addressed your query there very much circuitously, but I think I got around to the point that I needed to make.
5: (laughs) Right. That actually makes good sense. And I've seen some other research showing how important, you know, tying your circadian rhythm to your sleep cycle is. Now, part of the circadian rhythm, obviously, is, you know, light and dark cycles. And I was wondering if it's possible that you should sync basically your sleep cycle with, you know, when the sun comes up and when the sun goes down. So does it really matter you now in relation to sunrise and sunset when you get your sleep? Is there any benefit from waking up with the sun and going to bed at dusk versus you know being a night owl?
4: You know, there actually does not seem to be – it's not per se when you get up and go to sleep relative to that cycle of light and dark in the environment so much as that you're consistent with it. You know, so, again, there are people who are night owls and who would rather stay up until 2 a.m. and and get up at at 10 a.m. Provided that their schedule allows them to do that, they will still have very healthy sleep and very efficient sleep. But if their work schedule, for instance, requires them to deviate from that, you know, so if their work schedule would tell them that they should be going to bed at dusk and getting up at 3 a.m., that type of individual, that person who's more of a night owl, will have chronically disrupted sleep. So we do need to be sensitive to our own internal rhythms and where those internal rhythms are relative to the day and night. But there's not a right time of day to wake up and a right time of day to go to sleep for, you know, across all individuals. Every individual has their own and we call it a chronotype. Actually, this is a term that you may or may not have heard before. A chronotype. So, so it's sort of a phenotype with respect to uh, chronology, with respect to time of day. Does that make sense?
2: That's a really cool word, and that's actually not one I know, chronotype. I think we'll have to uh put some stuff up on the blog about that. Is there a good way to identify your chronotype, or do you just sort of give yourself some space and see when you go to sleep and wake up and that tells you?
4: Basically the way take a week's vacation, sleep when you want, get up when you want,
2: and you'll find out pretty quickly what your
4: preference is,
2: you know? Got it. You mentioned jet lag and recovery times for that. I've worked all over the globe. Last year, I flew a 100 times, oftentimes internationally. And getting past jet lag has been a a personal goal of mine forever. And it used to just completely kill me. Mm -hmm. I'm to the point that I don't get jet lag anymore. But the number one technology that did that for me was something called earthing, where I sleep with it, where I'm electrically grounded. Like literally, I sleep on a sheet that's conductive, and it's plugged into the grounding outlet on the wall. It's mm-hmm. just, Lance Armstrong does this for faster physical recovery. It seems to to help with physical recovery even when I'm not traveling, but I'm to the point I won't travel without this thing. Am I like Mr. Placebo Wacko? or have you ever heard anything about this?
4: <laughs> I have never heard of this. Uh, so I'm writing this down, you know, you're calling it earthing and it's so yeah. a sheet it, that's grounded.
2: Yeah, it's uh I blog about it a little bit and uh, it was a cable systems engineer who figured this out for mostly older people who are having chronic neurological problems and you know he's measuring physiological differences in charge and the theory is that we're always wearing shoes walking around so we're not ever electrically grounded, so we build up a static charge that has physiological consequences. But man, man, I'll take the red eye to England, and if I either walk around barefoot or do yoga in the park for a half hour, uh, or I sleep electrically grounded, I, I literally don't have jet lag. I wake up the next morning at the right time. I feel good. I have one cup of coffee in the morning, and you know, I'm as long as I eat enough fat that day, I'm completely good to go all day long. Yeah, well, that's—I mean—that's great. I have to say, I have
4: absolutely no familiarity with this technique, so I'm not at all okay. prepared to to comment
2: on it. I didn't um, mean to spring that one on you. You just had mentioned right. jet lag, so that's okay. I can send you some info on that, and I'm thankful to get your feedback because, you know, validating things that that you know work versus things that are completely out there is is particularly interesting to me because this is something that I kind of do to manage my career. Mm-hmm. What should people be doing that maybe isn't so weird <laughs> uh, in terms of improving their sleep? Like what are your top five? like, for God's sake, could you please just do this type of recommendations?
4: Let's see. So going to sleep and getting up at the same time every day of the week, seven days a week is a good idea, okay? So you know people tend often tend to during the week, maybe they'll try to squeeze sleep out of their schedule. They'll get, you know, five, six hours of sleep, but they're building up a sleep need. And so they on the weekend they do what seems natural to sort of do a, a binge sleep on Friday night and Saturday night. And they'll on top of that, they're quite often, you know, going out, doing social things well into the evening. So you have a very different sleep schedule during the week and the weekend. And then when you're engaging in these shifts in your sleep schedule from the weekend, you know, back to the week and then same thing at the end of the week, you lose some of the quality of your sleep and some of what we call the sleep architecture. That is the normal set of events that unfolds as we go to sleep is kind of disrupted because we're going through sleep at different times of day. Now, if you have to lose sleep during the week, by all means, get it back during the weekend. But try to keep the sleep schedule the same because your sleep is best when it is at that exact same phase of the circadian cycle seven days a week. So, so try to minimize the the deviation between the week and the weekend. That's one thing. Exercise is quite good for, I mean, exercise is good for so many reasons, you know, but it's quite good for sleep actually. So one of the things that um, exercise does is, this is probably obvious, when we exercise, we get an increase in our body temperature And as a reaction to that, later on, you will have a decline in your body temperature. And that decline that you see in your body temperature is a natural trigger for sleep onset and for quality sleep. You do not want to exercise in the evening because that surge in body temperature will continue for a few hours. It will cut into the time when your temperature should be declining and promoting sleep. But if you exercise, certainly in the morning, that helps to consolidate our circadian rhythm if you exercise in the middle of the day and even into the afternoon when you get that increase in body temperature that is going to feed back onto a decline later that will promote sleep another thing we can do to promote sleep and and this appears to be specifically through again through the fact that temperature that a decline in body temperature will trigger sleep is take melatonin so melatonin is a hormone that's produced naturally by our body it's produced by a gland called the pineal gland and it's released under normal circumstances if we have healthy sleep and we have a regular sleep cycle like i talked about that melatonin will be released at about the time that we go to bed 10 11 12 at night so if you take melatonin at that time it's actually not helpful but if you need to sleep at another time so for instance we talked about jet lag you're going to England. That means you're going to want to go to bed five hours earlier than you would. You know, Greenwich Mean Time is five hours before Eastern Standard Time, and so you're going to want to go to bed on your new time, your your Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, in order to do that, you could take melatonin at about 10 p.m. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time. You know, and this will trigger your body temperature to decline. This will actually improve your sleep, and the studies on that are very solid. the taking melatonin again, at a time of day when you wouldn't otherwise be going to sleep can be beneficial. When it's taken at your normal bedtime in your normal time zone, it's not likely to be as helpful. So I wouldn't recommend that as a daily habit, but in terms of shifting your sleep, that certainly helps. So those are the things that that come to mind right off the bat.
5: Dr. Weiser, you just talked about how athletics and exercise affect sleep. Do you think it's Mm -hmm. more important for athletes and active people to get more sleep? And if someone were working out a lot, would restricting sleep, either partly maybe to work out more, could actually do more harm than good?
4: Yeah, that's a very good question, and that does seem to be the case for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I should back up and say you know, exercise is good no matter what. So if you find that you're unable to sleep for whatever reason – you know at least some level of exercise might not be a bad thing or or to put it another way to restrict your sleep to a limited extent in order that you might get more exercise the net effect of that exercise is still probably good however if the restriction of sleep is extreme you're doing a couple of different things one is growth hormone release is very much dependent on sleep And so if you have disrupted sleep, if you have insufficient sleep, you're going to cut back on the amount of growth hormone that is released in your body. And, you know, of course, we know growth hormone helps us to build muscle, helps us to reduce fat. And so if we restrict our sleep as an athlete or as just someone who wants to be healthy, we are we are limiting the amount of growth hormone that we're going to have circulating in our system. And we're eliminating these positive effects of growth hormone. Another aspect of sleep is that it seems that there are other positive aspects of exercise which are blocked when we don't get sufficient sleep. So there's a study looking at a mouse, a rodent model for colon cancer. So these are mice that have a mutation that causes them to develop colon cancer. Turns out that the rate at which they develop colon cancer is reduced when they're allowed to exercise. So your control group is you have a mouse in its laboratory cage. Your experimental group for the exercise is you give them a running wheel in that cage. And mice love running wheels, so they'll run on that running wheel. They'll get a lot of exercise. It also slows the rate at which they develop colon cancer. However, if you couple this manipulation with sleep restriction, you lose that effect, that positive effect of the exercise. So the colon cancer will come back if those animals are not getting sufficient sleep now this may be related to growth hormone because exercise itself can trigger uh, or at least promote growth hormone and so if you're then blocking that beneficial effect of growth hormone by restricting the sleep you know this is one way in which the positive effects of exercise are counteracted by sleep deprivation
2: so absolutely sleep is important for athletes and everyone else how about specifically kids and, and pregnant women? I have a book about you know what to do for epigenetics before and during pregnancy that's coming out from Wiley this year. I would say pregnant women sleep more as much as your body needs. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any specific advice for fertility or pregnancy and sleep?
4: Pregnancy and sleep. Well, I, I have two children, so I know that sleep was very rough for my wife when she was pregnant. I can certainly tell yeah. you that Um that's that's not I'm not comfortable with that. I mean that's not within my area of expertise. Okay. So I you know, I, I don't have anything specific to say on that. But you mentioned children. I mean, you know, growth hormone is much more important for children than it is for adults. And you know, the amount of uh, growth hormone that's released and the duration of growth hormone release are much higher in children than they are in adults. So sleep restriction would have that much more of a negative impact on on health in children than it does in adults. I mean, I think I'm not aware of any studies on this. And obviously, I think you'd, you'd get yourself in, in big trouble from an ethical standpoint <laughs> quickly if you were to try to do a systematic study uh, restricting sleep in children. But, you know, it just this is the kind of thing that just makes sense. You know, you have a growing body. You need that burst of, of growth hormone secretion that helps with that growth disruption of sleep will
2: disrupt that growth hormone release so yeah not good yeah i think that's great advice for any listeners uh, who have kids uh, definitely don't uh, don't mess with their sleep uh, my kids who are two and a half and four and a half uh, they oftentimes sleep you know, up to 12 hours you know they they take a nap and they sleep what they need at night and we try not to use alarm clocks and I, I couldn't agree more I, I think that's just good advice so for us adults out there, here's a big question. Have you looked at the electrical stimulation, the CES, the Russian sleep machine types of technologies at, at all in your in your work? First of all,
4: I should say that yeah, there there have been published studies on this, and I'm not thinking of my work first and foremost. There's a there's a group out of Germany I'm familiar with that's done transcranial magnetic stimulation and shown that this transcranial magnetic stimulation, which promotes the electrical activity. In the brain that's associated with sleep, this type of manipulation improves the performance on uh, memory dependent tasks. I mean, they used a very simple task. They used word recall. So you've got a list of words. You memorize it before you go to sleep. The subjects in the experiment were then divided into two groups. One group were the controls. They just had a normal night's sleep. Another group were subjected to transcranial magnetic stimulation, which induced this sleep intensified the electrical waveforms of the brain during sleep. And that group in the the experimental group that got the stimulation were able to recall more of the words on the list. So that this came out in the journal Nature about five years ago and other studies have have backed up this finding in general. So this is definitely a promising technique from my own perspective. I'm looking at this. I am doing these types of stimulations in, in an experimental setting, but I'm addressing more. Not to dismiss the practical applications of this. I think they're very real. But my concern is more from a biological perspective. What is that stimulation actually doing to the brain biochemically, metabolically, uh, and in terms of uh, neuronal function? So yeah, I think it's it's absolutely real. I mean, on the other hand, it's the technologies, by my understanding, are somewhat ungainly and awkward. You know, if you have a bed partner, you, they probably don't want you to be sleeping with this big helmet on. There's probably a lot of noise
2: associated
4: with it, and you know, so so good luck getting that one past the bed partner. But I do <laughs> believe it's real.
2: <laughs> the the magnetic stimulation there is something I'm, I'm pretty eager to to play with. And I've used – especially if I'm only getting two hours of sleep because I got stuck in an airport and I have to be on stage, stuff like that. I'll I'll use a CES machine, which runs a small shaped current between two electrodes um, either on my ears or on my forehead. And I've actually had times when I sleep two hours and I wake up just feeling like um, amazingly good. And the studies I've seen show increased frontal alpha and things like that. And so um, I've talked with other people on the blog who've used either TDCS which is, you know, one-way current versus the small-shaped current running back and, and forth. And mm-hmm. and both of them have noticed improvements in sleep. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is – it's how do you monitor sleep with an EEG when you're running your own separate current across the brain? So it, it, it's always sort of before and after studies. It's never simultaneous.
4: Right. Well, and I mean the before and the after is actually what matters most, I would say. I mean yeah. – you know we have we can look at what's going on during sleep but but ultimately i you know why people care about sleep and the science behind sleep is that sleep allows them to function more effectively during the day so you know when you have studies like the one that i mentioned where you actually see an improvement in daytime performance that's the gold standard you know both from a laboratory science standpoint and from the end user out there in the public. Again, you know, maybe you could convince a bed partner to let you have a transcranial magnetic stimulator in your bed if it's going to make you more efficient in your workday and more successful in your career, you know? So maybe the, at least, you know, one the, night a week or something. I don't know.
2: The, the trick for me was was it made me do the dishes, and after that, everything worked. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. Transcranial <laughs> obedience. <right? laughs>
5: Switching gears here, one of the other mm-hmm. big topics of the blog Is nutrition and how nutrition can improve sleep. Have you looked at Mm -hmm. any evidence showing how nutrient deficiencies, say like something along the lines of magnesium, might impair sleep? And are there any nutritional supplements you think might help sleep?
4: The only supplement that comes to mind, I'm not familiar with magnesium. You know, and I saw that question not being familiar with myself. I went and asked a couple of my colleagues. The consensus, at least here, was that uh, there's no strong link between sleep and magnesium. Uh, and the other supplement, which I've I've already mentioned, is is of course melatonin. That melatonin can help sleep because, it, again, it seems to work primarily through regulating body temperature, which is such an important trigger for sleep for us. So, and you know, a lot of the supplements they just don't you know? I mean, I can't make a sweeping generalization here, but you hear about you know St. John's Wort and things. It's just hard to get data in well-designed laboratory studies that link supplements to sleep. You know, you mentioned the placebo effect before, and there's what, there's nothing wrong with the placebo effect. You know, if you are taking a supplement that is not demonstrably bad for your health, then why not take it? Um, But in terms of, you know, as an empiricist, I have to say that when you hear about supplements and sleep, the data are just not very strong,
2: to be honest. Well, then let's go a little past just supplements. And you, in fact, the reason I I learned about your work was because I was reading a study you did on methamphetamine and modafinil and the sleep-wake cycle of mice, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm probably the only person on earth who got excited when I read that um, (laughs) out of a very small (laughs) group. But what did you find these drugs did to mice, and do you think those results might be relevant for humans?
4: We're interested in modafinil originally because we wanted to understand the mechanism that it acted. I mean, It was developed as a drug with somewhat ill-defined mechanisms of action. And what we have shown, this is not without its detractors, but I would say in general about the detractors, that they are more interested in identifying other potential mechanisms than actually disproving the hypothesis that we put forth for regarding modafinil. And, and what we found in our studies with modafinil is that it acts on, it blocks something called the dopamine transporter. Now, dopamine is one of our neurotransmitters. It is released from a set of cells in the brain Immediately after those cells release the dopamine, there's something called a dopamine transporter, which is located on the cell very close to where, it's re- where the dopamine is released. And that transporter will actively take the dopamine back up into the cell that released it. So if you take a compound that blocks that dopamine transporter, such as modafinil or methamphetamine, well, now every time dopamine is released, it's going to be outside the cell for a longer period of time and it's going to stimulate the receptors on other cells. And it turns out that when you do that with dopamine, you produce wakefulness. So, And you can maintain wakefulness for a long period of time. Both modafinil and methamphetamine are very good at doing that. Now, there is there are some important differences between modafinil and methamphetamine, one of them being that that blockade of that dopamine transporter appears to be the primary effect of modafinil, whereas methamphetamine does the same thing for cells that release serotonin and noradrenaline and a few other neurotransmitters as well. So methamphetamine is what we call sort of a dirty drug. It has multiple effects, whereas modafinil appears to be fairly specific for dopamine. And the other is that methamphetamine will actively extract dopamine from the cell, dopamine and all these other neurotransmitters that I mentioned, will actively extract them from the cell and release them into the extracellular environment where they'll then stimulate receptors, as opposed to modafinil, which doesn't actually extract the neurotransmitters. It only blocks the reuptake of the dopamine. So these were some of the things that we and others have discovered, that namely that this dopamine transporter... Is required for the wake-promoting effect of modafinil. But then we took this a step further and we started to ask, well, okay, so both methamphetamine and modafinil act to block this dopamine transporter. How is it that they appear to have differential effects? So, for instance, individuals who are on methamphetamine for uh, extended periods of time will go through a crash afterward. Um, they will be, they will go through a protracted period of sleep. Um, potentially lasting for days. And in fact, if if you want to see documentation of a person going through methamphetamine withdrawal, there's a documentary out there called The Devil's Playground, in which there's a teenager who's going through methamphetamine withdrawal, and he doesn't seem to do much but sleep for about three or four days. So that's very common when you go through methamphetamine withdrawal. That doesn't seem to happen with modafinil withdrawal. So we're interested in this crash after methamphetamine. Again, this is just a, a basic neurobiological question that we've tried to approach, not so much for its clinical relevance as for what it would tell us about the uh, the brain and how sleep is regulated. What we have shown with methamphetamine in recent years is that it triggers an inflammation reaction in the brain. So when I say inflammation, inflammation in general terms is the same reaction that we go through when we have an infection. Inflammation sort of refers to a change in the qualities of the tissue that allow the immune system to effectively eliminate an infection. And something about methamphetamine, and we haven't, I think, a lot of the details as to how methamphetamine causes inflammation are still remaining to be determined. But it does seem that from the brain's perspective, being exposed to methamphetamine, to high levels of methamphetamine or chronic exposure to methamphetamine, is very similar to undergoing an infection with an infectious agent. And so the brain is going through this change, this inflammation, that is designed to clear out something toxic or hostile to the brain, essentially. And in fact, there is some evidence that the same thing occurs on a small scale when we don't get enough sleep. So these changes that we associate uh, at the molecular level with inflammation, they can be detected when you are sleep-deprived in the brain.
2: So you mentioned inflammation in mm-hmm. in the brain. There's also an effect on histamine and, and some of the high-performance nutritional recommendations in, uh, in the Bulletproof Executive blog involve reducing your consumption of biogenic amines like histamine that forms naturally in some foods but not others. Like avoid mm-hmm. fermented soy because it's high in histamine which can cause inflammation which lowers cognitive performance which makes you fatter. Did you notice any histamine or other amine effects from these drugs?
4: Not histamine per se, but that is an interesting uh, link that you've made here. You know, certainly there is a link between uh, histamine and inflammation. In general, we think when histamine is released within the brain itself, it actually it doesn't appear to be pro-inflammatory, but it's probably the blood brain barrier and the interaction of the brain with its surrounding environment in the body is probably triggered to undergo inflammation through through histamine, uh, as are other tissues. So I think that's a fair point. But with regard to the studies that I've done specifically, you know, I haven't come across any information with regard to the role for histamine. Uh, another thing about the soy compounds that, you know, and I suppose this is more of a question for you, but I have heard that soybeans are rich in phytoestrogens. yes. And so that's another aspect, and I don't know if you, you know, or whoever has studied these scientifically has attempted to parse out the effects of histamine-related compounds in soybeans versus the effects of phytoestrogens in soybeans. So that's something that you may ask. That's something you may want to address in your blog. Thank uh, you. And I, have, I wouldn't begin to make an answer to that
2: myself. Thank you for, for bringing that up. We, we've, sure. I've seen studies on like genistein and some of the other phytoestrogens that are isolated from soy as separate from the, the biogenic amines. And the biogenic amines are mostly around, you know, soy sauce and uh, tofu and things like that. So interesting. All right, I'll have to dig that one up. Um, that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. So we were just talking a little bit about
5: inflammation. And if inflammation plays such a large effect on the brain, do you think that other forms of inflammation might also impair brain function and sleep quality?
4: Other forms of inflammation? Well, could you, there's, could you, sure. There's could
5: a, a lot of research right now about gut bacteria and how the microbiome inside us can actually, if it's dysregulated, so you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, can actually start to cause kind of an inflammatory state in the body. And I was wondering if maybe some uh, inflammation could actually affect brain function and hurt sleep in that way.
4: I'm not sure it would hurt sleep. I mean, when we think about inflammation in the context of sleep, we think of it as a sort of a protective mechanism. Or to put it another way, the brain has ways of detecting inflammation. One of the ways that it reacts to inflammation is to increase our need to sleep. So sleep is protective against that inflammation. At the same time, it seems logical that if you reduce the source of inflammation, be it dietary, gut bacteria, et cetera, whatever it is, then you could potentially reduce the need for sleep. And in fact, there is some scientific evidence for that from one of my colleagues here at Washington State, uh, Jim Kruger. So Jim Kruger put rats on sort of a cafeteria junk food diet. I mean, it's kind of a shame to to think of it, you know, a cafeteria where the children go to to school, you know, eat, eat in the cafeteria, you know, hamburgers, pizza, et cetera. He gave these rats a cafeteria diet with junk food in it And it caused an increase in their need to sleep. And what he then did is he severed the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve detects inflammation in the gut and sends that information to the brain. When he severed the vagus nerve, these effects of the cafeteria diet, the increased need to sleep as a consequence of the cafeteria diet, was abolished. So that is, you know, providing... A solid base of evidence that, yes, what we eat and how our body reacts to that with inflammation can affect our brain and ultimately will be translated into changes in our sleep pattern. Dave, I haven't actually looked up your diet, but this, you know, getting back to what sort of where we started at the beginning, you're saying that you were able to restrict your sleep through very careful regulation of your diet. That does make sense within the context of what I told you. What you're eating is going into your gut. That information is feeding through the vagus into your brain, and that is in turn determining the amount of sleep you need.
2: It's certainly my experience that I was not able to maintain the low levels of sleep if I ate uh, higher amounts of carbs, if I ate gluten. Mm -hmm. And Certainly, this may sound a little weird uh, to the uninitiated, but high amounts of grass-fed butter were really important. Uh, I believe the reason is probably the presence of short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid, and I also took a lot of medium-chain triglycerides, which are really good for fueling the brain. Eating 60% of my calories from low-toxin saturated fats with conjugated linoleic acid and, and things like that really seemed to be the trick to, to doing this, uh, mm. As well as avoiding things like mycotoxins and the biogenic amines. When when I put those together, I could do it when I would eat something that wasn't on the the diet. There's a whole infographic on the site. I needed an extra hour or two of sleep, and so it, it just didn't work.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I
2: mean, it does. All of this does seem to
4: fit nicely into a you know picture that. of of the diet and how its impact on the gut will in turn impact on the brain for sure. You know, I should be clear, we're sort of stepping into speculation right now. You mentioned butyric acid, you know, that, that has very clear effects on the brain. Whether it would get from your mouth, through your digestive system, and ultimately through your circulation into the brain in the same form, I have no idea. But if it does, certainly that could promote sleep directly,
2: you know. In fact, if you ever feel like doing a study on people who eat a special diet and the amount of sleep they need, I'm in the top 100,000 websites on the whole Internet. So I have lots of followers who would probably sign up, and they're already eating the special diet. So Uh, I'm a source of, of study subjects, if you'd like. Good. I will keep that in mind for sure, yeah. We have one more question for you, Dr. Weiser. Mm-hmm. At, at the end of every show, we ask every guest this question. Okay. And it's what are the top three recommendations that you have throughout your entire life, your field of study or anything else, for people who just want to be as powerful and high performance as they can be in, in all aspects of their life, like the three most important things that you know?
4: Okay. Well, I, yeah, everything I say is to an extent – colored by my choice to spend my life studying sleep. So, of course, it's going to have to do with sleep, at least one of these, uh, one of my ideas. And that I, I would say, again, having a regular sleep schedule as much as possible. Try to keep the same schedule seven days a week. Keep that constant routine going so that you will have the highest quality sleep. And everything that we've talked about that needs quality sleep will improve if you can do that sort of thing. Take breaks from what you're doing. One of the things that's been very interesting in sleep research in the past few years is that people have improved techniques for studying the activity of very small regions of the brain when we're awake or when we're asleep, typically through high-density electroencephalograms, but there are some other ways of doing this as well. But what is being shown with some very interesting studies over the last few years is that if you use a particular cortical column, if you use a particular portion of your cerebral cortex intensively, for a short period of time that portion of the cerebral cortex will actually go to sleep while you're trying to use it. Even though the rest of your body and the rest of your brain will be awake, you don't realize this is occurring, but that small portion of the brain that's been intensively used will start to go to sleep, will no longer function. And so whatever this task is that you're doing intensively, your efficiency in doing that task declines because the brain is shutting off in subtle ways that you can't even detect. And so if you take a break, it allows that area of the brain to sort of go through its own miniature sleep cycle. And really, in the longer term, while we do need the overnight sleep for the whole brain to recharge, just taking breaks has an improving effect and so there's something called again we quantify this in what we call the time on task effect and this is again in this psychomotor vigilance task if you look at someone's performance on the psychomotor vigilance task regardless of the time of day regardless of how tired they are if you trace their performance during a 10 minute period of time their performance starts out strong and over 10 minutes it gets significantly worse because we're losing the ability to focus on this task as we spend time on the tasks. So breaks are important. Take real breaks, walk away from your computer, go outside or somewhere else, do something that you do only during breaks. And I guess I would I would leave it there. And I guess the only other thing would be to reconsider why exactly it is you want to be powerful and improve your performance. But that's more of a philosophical thing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, That certainly is. Dr. Weiser, this has been a fascinating interview about sleep. I I really appreciate the work you're doing uh, to understand, you know, why people are the way they are. And sleep is such a fundamental part of, you know, what we spend our lives on. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time on the show.
4: Well, thank you very much. And I think what you're doing is actually, you know, it reaffirms to me that, you know, these studies are important and that, you know, these kinds of things can make a difference in people's performance and people's lives. So it was a pleasure for me. Thank you.
5: Dr. Weiser, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you.
3: Great. That was really great listening to John. So you ready for a little bit of Q&A? Right on. All right. So today, one reader who is seriously considering doing the rapid fat loss protocol wrote in with several questions. Her name is Eileen. She says, hi, Dave. My weight has fluctuated between being 40 pounds overweight and 140 pounds overweight, partially due to two pregnancies and helping my husband nonstop with his business. I just didn't have time to take care of myself, but I'm so tired of feeling like crap and being fat. I've started doing weights and P90X and have lost six pounds already. I'm seriously considering doing the full fat fast to lose the weight quickly and wanted to know several things. My first question is... Is doing this for 75 days going to decrease muscle or cause other adverse effects?
2: Anytime you're going to lose tons and tons of fat in a short period of time, you can have adverse effects. And I recommend really clearly in the blog that you just do bulletproof intermittent fasting like, like anyone who wants to lose weight, and you'll lose weight at an amazingly rapid rate. But for some people who have a lot to lose or just people who are so type A, they just don't want to wait, they jump right into the rapid fat loss protocol. And it's titled actually how to lose weight faster than you really should. So this is the sort of thing where people on a sustained basis can lose a pound a day. Some of the people who have used this have posted their results uh, there and you know, 60 pounds in 60 days, 75 pounds in 75 days. This is a carefully designed program. It's stressful on the body, you actually use stress hormones to help you burn fat. So if you're going to try and do this diet at the same time doing P90X, which is the definition of overtraining, P90X will work for a brief period of time until it burns out your adrenals. The makers of P90X talk about how they took high intensity interval training and reversed it. So it was high intensity all the time with only a short break. Uh, That's not biohacking, that's marketing. And It's just not the right way to go about taking care of your body and living a long time and even looking and feeling good without injuries for a long period of time. Like you'll wear yourself out. So using my fasting protocols with a high intensity, not interval, but just flat out high intensity exercise program on a daily basis, it's going to overtrain you. If you want to work out while you're doing the rapid fat loss protocol, I'd suggest 15 minutes, maybe two or three times a week of a program called T-Tap. We'll link that from the show notes. T-Tap is easier on your joints. It's scientifically designed. It's relatively intense. It's going to tire you out, but it's nothing like P90X. However, you'll notice a big reduction in especially like the spare tire around the middle. It's a phenomenally effective program.
3: Great. Yeah, I actually started doing T-tap a couple months ago and uh I really like her program. So her next question is can it be done in smaller chunks for longer or can it even be done past that time frame? I assume it the it she's referring to is the fasting.
2: There are people who have Done, you know, even full fasting without food at all for months at a, months at a time. Although they tend to get really, really sick. This is not a food-free fasting, and I recommend that at least once a week, and sometimes, especially for women, probably twice a week, you want to do a carb refeed. So as long as you're doing your carb refeed on a regular basis and you're monitoring your health, it can be done for longer, but you really should get, you know, your liver tests done. One of the problems that you run into when you're losing tons of weight is that the body will store things like mercury or mycotoxins or dioxin or other environmental toxins in fat cells. If your liver doesn't have enough energy to oxidize these toxins, then they have to get stored somewhere or they go into your brain. So there's a bit of a problem here. If you are full of toxins and you do this month after month and you lose your 140 pounds, if those 140 pounds contained a lot of toxins, you will need to be detoxing along the way and you may want to take some breaks. I actually recommend that you eat on the green side of the Bulletproof diet, do the Bulletproof intermittent fasting. And because you're a woman, by the way, see my blog post on women and paleo and intermittent fasting, you may actually do better if you, even on every day of the intermittent fast, you have a few carbs before bedtime. For you, your job is to not overtax your adrenals while you're trying to lose your weight.
3: Great. And uh, her third question is, once I stop fasting, will eating make me gain weight slash lose muscle? And will it have adverse health issues even if I eat paleo organic?
2: There are no guarantees with anything like this. I'm not a medical professional, and your results may vary. I can tell you, for myself, you know, I've lost 100 pounds and kept it off for a very long time. And for the people that I've spoken with who've tried these sorts of protocols, they do tend to gain a small amount of weight back, like you know a few pounds, which is very normal because when you start eating some carbs, you gain water and glycogen, but for the most part, they're able to keep the weight off if they stay on a paleo-style diet. It doesn't need to be carb limited. If as soon as they lose their weight they celebrate with pizza and cheesecake, yes, it comes back and you know, the weight comes back. That's what happens. You need to eat a low toxin diet that's biologically appropriate. That's just how it needs to be. In terms of other adverse effects, as long as you don't have pre-existing conditions, I haven't heard about any problems, but that doesn't mean there won't be any. The safest and best path is to do bulletproof intermittent fasting, because you're a woman, to have some carbs in the evening, basically before bed, maybe a tablespoon or two of raw honey. But if you want to lose this much weight, it does work. And if you're going to do it, you should get your liver panels done. You should take the liposomal glutathione, which will help to protect your liver, and you should not abuse your body with high-intensity exercise while you're trying to lose this much weight. You're spending all of your metabolic energy and reserves on dumping the fat, oxidizing the toxins. You don't need to add to your burden any more than you already have. The good thing is, if it works the way it's worked for me and for other people who really want to shed weight, this doesn't take very long. You will feel hungry some of the time, but anytime you're hungry, you can always have more bulletproof coffee, and your body will be... 100% in fat burning mode and it'll burn the fat, you'll probably feel really good too after the first week or so.
3: Her next question is, will there be days that suck? What can I expect? I need to drop 100, though 120 would be better. It sounds like she's really motivated to lose this weight.
2: Some days probably will suck, to be perfectly honest. Going through the psychological changes that come from separating the way you use food as a psychological mechanism may be a really big issue. It is for a lot of people. It even used to be for me when I was much younger. There was a lot of emotional attachment to food. I look at food now as you know a source of fuel and energy, uh, and I take great pleasure in eating the best food I can find. But I also can go 24 hours without eating, and I don't feel like I'm going to die or that no one loves me. The idea that you need to understand your own psychological makeup there is really important. Most people just don't feel hungry once they're on this program. After a few days, you just sort of have your fuel in the morning, have your fuel later in the day, and just keep going. And then you start to obsess after a couple of days of that about your next carb refeed. Because your body and your brain are telling you this. Hey. You know, it's getting kind of intense here. I'm shedding an awful lot of fat. When am I going to get some more of that glucose that my brain really craves? And that's where sweet potatoes come in. So you do every three days, every seven days, uh, you do that refeed, and you will find that magic things happen to your body.
3: Okay, her next question is: Would taking appetite suppressants such as hoodia or HCG assist in the process?
0: I
2: think you should just try eating strictly bulletproof for the first month before even trying to fast. You may just be so surprised at the results and decide that you don't really need to fast more than once a week, maybe for a day or something. Bulletproof coffee in the morning, bulletproof foods for lunch and dinner has a pretty profound effect. You don't need something like a hoodia to try and, and reduce your appetite. Your body, when you're in fat-burning mode, you'll eat the right amount of fat that you need. And if you're still hungry, you'll have more fat. It self-regulates. Trying to intentionally eat less when you're doing the rapid fat loss protocol isn't particularly useful for you. It's just eating the right stuff. So no, don't try and do that. A low-calorie diet, which happens from an appetite suppressant, will not lead to good things. It'll lead to adrenal stress.
3: Yeah. One of the things I've noticed for me is I don't count calories anymore. I have no idea how much I eat except for butter because I can see how quickly I go through it. And my weight has maintained really, really easily. I, I was traveling for most of June and historically when I travel, like I put on about five pounds a week because I'm just eating whatever is available. I tried really hard to stick to Bulletproof and I didn't gain a pound while traveling. And all I did was make sure the foods I ate were Bulletproof and had my Bulletproof coffee in the morning. Her last question, which I think is actually kind of an important question. It speaks to, you know, I think some of our egos. Are things going to sag?
2: You know, with 100 pounds, it's possible. But it also depends on how elastic your skin is, which is a function of age, your progesterone levels. Slower weight loss generally has less sag, although I don't know if I've seen a study that says that in particular. A lot of people find a benefit from taking collagen supplements. I have collagen supplements on upgradedself.com that are the best out there from grass fed animals, low molecular weight. That's the stuff that I use. I don't have any sagging, even though I'm, you know, essentially lost 50% of my current body weight. I do have stretch marks, though. If you have stretch marks, those are a sign of excess estrogen, excess cortisol. Once you have stretch marks that are deep, they're really not going away. You can bleach them and all, but you know, you're know you still going to have the actual like tearing in this, the parts under the skin. So if you're concerned about it, what you should start doing now is taking collagen. You should make sure your hormones are right, and you should do something called dry skin brushing on a daily basis. This is a stiff bristle like a boar bristle brush. You rub it all over your body, and it actually assists more than you would imagine, in detoxing the body. It helps to keep your skin firm and taut. And then one of the best things, and I know that this works because Zach, who lost 75 pounds in 75 days, is a huge fan of it. This is the Bulletproof Vibe, the vibrating platform that we've got on the site. You stand on the thing for about 15 minutes a day. It assists with lymphatic flow and weight loss. In fact, that would be the best exercise you could do on a daily basis if if you were on the rapid fat loss protocol. But while it does that vibrating, it tells your skin, the parts that are sagging, that it's time to tighten up. And it sends that signal to them that forces your body to say, I better repair the skin. I better tighten it up. The other model you have is because you've had two kids, you can look at pregnant women. You may want to look at your abdominal muscles and see if they've come back together. There's a medical term whose name I already forgot that describes a lot of women, including my wife, actually, who have a hard time bringing their abs back together. And until you do that, getting the sag gone all the way is hard to do. But for you, it sounds like getting the fat off first is the big problem. And secondly, it's going to be what you do uh, with the muscles themselves.
3: Cool. That was a very thorough answer. I have actually one more question. Would vitamin C help at all in, in supporting the skin's natural elasticity?
2: You know, that's a really good question. And that's an oversight on my part. It turns out vitamin C is one of the things that forms collagen in your own body. So if you're short on vitamin C, it's hard for you to form collagen. If you're supplementing with collagen, it's easier for your body to put that into collagen, but you ought to be on vitamin C. Plus, if you're doing the rapid fat loss, you're dumping toxins left and right. So you should be taking vitamin C for your liver anyway. The dosage there, you know, as they say, you know, work with a medical professional, et cetera, et cetera. I am a fan during this type of thing to take several grams a day up until it almost gives you diarrhea. That much vitamin C is pretty darn amazing for fighting infections, and you're putting your body through an awful lot of stress by losing a pound or two of fat a day, so vitamin C is something that will help you there. I would definitely up the C.
3: Great. Thanks so much, Dave. And Eileen, good luck. Let us know how you're doing.
6: Welcome to the Biohacker Report. This is the part of the show where we bring you some of the latest research that caught our attention. The first study today is called Short-Term Sprint Interval versus Traditional Endurance Training, Similar Initial Adaptations in Human Skeletal Muscle and Exercise Performance. If the title of this study sounds familiar, it's because we mentioned it in our podcast with Dr. Doug McGuff in episode 26. You've probably heard how interval training has been shown in some studies to produce many of the benefits of longer workouts of a lesser intensity. This is one of those studies. Our story starts long ago in a laboratory in the heart of McMaster University in a strange land known as Ontario, Canada. The year was A.D. 2006, and researchers were investigating preliminary evidence that brief, intense exercise could produce equal or better adaptations to longer, easier sessions. These scientists sought to find a way to free humanity from the ruthless control of stairmasters and treadmills, which had taken over most of the fitness strongholds across the world. In this study, the researchers randomized 16 young, brave men into two groups, One group of eight men performed four to six hard cycling intervals at their maximum effort for 30 seconds, followed by four minutes of easy cycling in between each effort. The other group of eight men performed 90 to 120 minutes of cycling at 65% of their maximum effort. Each group performed six sessions over a 14-day period. Total training time for the interval group was two and a half hours over the course of the study and total training time for the easy group was 10 and a half hours. At the end of the trial, both groups performed equally well. Muscle biopsy results showed no difference in markers for training adaptations. Equal results, you say, with skepticism? Well, that's not a bad result for an exercise program that took 74% less time. Before you get too excited, though, this story has a few hidden twists. The subjects were described as active, which in this case means they exercised at an easy pace three times per week. This means it's unclear if these results apply to people who are already well-trained. The study was also a fairly small sample, which means it has a greater chance of producing a false positive. There was no group that did both intervals and steady-state training, so we don't know if a combination of both easy and hard sessions might be even better. The study only lasted a short duration, so it's unclear if these results would continue over time. It could be that if the study had continued, exercise may have needed to be a different kind for everyone to continue to improve. The subject's performance was measured with a time trial, which is good if you're trying to improve your performance for an endurance event. However, almost all competitive endurance athletes use a mix of intervals and longer, easier sessions, as well as race-paced workouts. This means that the study doesn't necessarily prove intervals are always better than steady state workouts for improving performance, but they're probably better than just long workouts, at least for short time trial events. Despite these small limitations, this is one of the first well-designed studies of the era to show that interval training can be just as effective for semi-active people who want to look good and be healthy in as little time as possible. For those who want to push the boundaries of fitness, this protocol is probably not for you. If you want to lose fat, not lose your breath climbing the stairs, and be able to sprint across an airport to catch a flight, all the while maintaining a day job and raising a family, this study supports the idea that you don't have to devote endless hours to exercise each week. You just need to work out harder. The noble researchers were awarded for their efforts in this study by having their research published in the prestigious Journal of Physiology where the full text is still available to this day on PubMed, as well as a link in the show notes to this episode. If you want to get as fit as possible in the least amount of time, focus on intensity first and duration second. Because that was a longer study, we're only going to cover that in our Biohacker
2: report today. If you enjoyed the show, the best way you can support us is to leave a ranking on iTunes. It helps more people find the show, which changes more lives, Thanks a lot for listening to episode 31. And I hope you join us again next week on Upgraded Self Radio.
0: A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.